don't overcomplicate it. The idea of the Instagram ready food that's got 73 garnishes and, and a, a colorful dust on it, like you want your food to be good looking, but people care about flavor, they care about consistency, and they care about speed. No one wants to go to a cafe on the weekend and wait 45 minutes for something that looks completely overwrought. They don't want to look at it. I mean, there is a demographic that likes that, but they're not going to be interested in you in two weeks. You know, they're going to the next one. You're on their bucket list. Raw, a podcast by Lightspeed and Poe. This is a podcast about the highs and lows of running a hospitality business. In collaboration with the Poe Network, which you've come to know with a conversation amplified. We have frank and open discussions about the state of the industry from the best leaders in hospitality. We aim to capture the extent of how far conversations can go. Uncensored, stripped and genuine, powerful and grounded in confidence. We unpack the unique first-hand experience from the experts tackling the very real and at times intense issues in our industry. Now let's get into today's show. When our next guest came across their first cafe with his cousin called Little West, the shop front had its windows plastered with movie posters. It took 18 months to open, but was soon loved by the local community for its great coffee, food and service. The second cousins have built a cafe group that has quickly grown with Little West, Applegum and somewhere north opening soon. So it's great to chat with one of the co-founders today, Josh Harrison. Hey, Josh, how are you, mate? G'day, I'm well, thank you. Fantastic to have you on the podcast. Now, we've known each other uh, for many years now, obviously with uh, with the dealings with Lightspeed and obviously with the counter before that. So it's really great to have another conversation with you. So let's let's start out, you know, as we start out most of our podcasts, we're talking about how you started out in the hospitality industry and how you got to a point um, where you're now, you know, building this amazing coffee brand with uh, with Sebastian, your cousin. Yeah, so it's, it started for me when I was a teenager. Uh, somewhere along the line there, I, I got quite interested in the idea of becoming a chef. So um, for year 11 and 12, I did commercial cookery. Uh, you know, I did, sort of eschewed the idea of going to university, I was going to travel, work some snow seasons, become a chef. And uh, once I finished high school, um, my sister was actually working in hospitality. She was uh, front of house, managing front of house for uh, Rushcutters Bay Yacht Club. Mm. And so for Christmas, she gave me uh, a notorious book called Kitchen Confidential <laughs> by Anthony Bourdain. Of course. And uh, as, a, as a young and impressionable lad, that really gave me a very different perspective on the world of hospitality. Not necessarily a bad one, but definitely an interesting one. Mm. Um, and so I, I left high school and, and quickly started looking for full-time work um, pretty much straight away. And I landed a job working in a function kitchen at Hawkesbury Racecourse. And that was interesting, um, but it certainly wasn't the glamour of chefing. Mm. Um, and I don't think I ever really was destined to be a highly creative um, food person. I was. I tended to be, you know, quite interested in operational efficiency and being able to create high quality uh, at speed. You know, uh, very much like the front of house experience. And so I moved from there straight on to Gloria Jeans, if you if you would imagine. Mm, uh, there you go. And concurrently, I had um, actually in between there, I'd gone to study um, my certificate attainment for for coffee. Because uh, it was it was pretty pretty early in the days of that certification actually because this was in two thousand and 
late 2005, early 2006. Mm-hmm. And so I was lucky enough to do my coffee training actually in the back room of Toby's estate's original location down in Woolloomooloo. Um, back when Toby's was, you know, one of the the bright stars in the specialty coffee scene. Mm. And so, yeah, that that kicked off um, the next sort of six-year career in in hospitality. I'd come from back of house where I did a bit of stuff and then moved my way front of house and then did quite a lot of seasonal work. Um, landed a job after Gloria Jean's at Australia's Highest Restaurant down at Threadbow, mm. uh, working the coffee bar there. Mm-hmm. And just progressed through there, um, moved into more management roles. And eventually, uh, after after about six years, it was uh, early 2012, um, I sort of hit a point where I was like, I don't know what to do next. Um, but I'd always dabbled around with the technology in the business. And so I ended up having an opportunity to, to start working um, with a point of sale company. And that turned out to be Nick and the rest of the, the counter story emerged from there. But counter being a, a hospitality product, um, it's always been something very close to my heart, that industry. Um, and definitely in the later years, as as the, the food trends changed and coffee trends changed, and it was interesting to see that there was a... a um, so this inverse relationship between product quality and service. Mm. And so Sebastian and I reconnected, um, our grandmothers and sisters, we reconnected around 20, we've been about 2017, 2018. We hadn't really seen each other much for a couple of years. And he'd very much dived into the specialty coffee scene. Um, and we said, you know, we just were, were chatting a bit. And as sort of 20, 2019, 2020 came around and all these leases started popping up, Sebastian just hit me up and said, hey, do you want to, do you want to check out this site and have a field? Mm. Um, and so we did. And, and after some back and forth, late 2020, we we're like, cool, let's let's get this site. We'll keep it simple. We'll chuck a bar in here. You know, we, we'll keep food really simple and light and fresh and easy to prepare. And yeah, then then Real World came in and and um, the rest is history. But um, we'll keep, we can touch on that laugh after. Mm, for sure. Did it did it take you like going to a family business? I know you guys are second cousin, but it, you know it obviously still is a family business to run through. Like, did it take you and and Sebastian like a long time to think about how that relationship would actually form out and and how you'd work together? Um, no, I, a lot of people talk about you know don't go to business with friends and don't go into business with family, and I think that's that's probably just don't go into business with the wrong people. Um, I've had plenty of roles where I've employed friends and had to have hard conversations. And on the inverse, a lot of the people that I've worked with have become close friends. And so if if you're going to start a business, you need to just make sure that um, you treat it with professionalism and that whoever you're going to business with treats it the same and that you put down rules of engagement. You know, we had a we had a pretty good working dynamic. It was pretty clear from day one that I'd be primarily helping design the concept and investing in it. And Sebastian, with his experience, would be running it day to day. He would take point on coffee and, you know, we would collaborate on the rest and eventually he would be running it full time. Um, and, you know, I would just be, I guess, involved, but not necessarily in the day to day operations. Mm-hmm. Um, so we found our groove pretty quickly there, for sure. What, what do you think the great things are about running the business in a partnership rather than, you know, you going out solo and like you obviously know hospitality so well, but, you know, Sebastian's skill is is very, very obvious from when I've chatted with him. Like 
what are the great things about being in partnership together? Well, you've got double the double the exposure, right? Um, you know, you, you've only got your own experience to draw on when you're doing it on your own. You can't externalize ideas uh, for good or worse. You know, it's good to have someone as a sounding board who can shoot holes in your ideas. Um, when you're down, they can be up and vice versa. You know, it helps keep the motivation going. You know, when you get a bit overloaded, uh, they can step in and and pick up the slack. You know, like I just, I went in on Sunday and punched out a shift and that was a lot of fun, kept a touch on the business. But, you know, I did that so that Sebastian was able to do what he needs to do, you know. Um, mm. So it's definitely about sharing the load. Yeah, you're sharing the return, but I think a lot of the time people might worry too much about owning owning everything or having complete control. Mm. And the, there's an inverse problem with that, which is that it means you're responsible for everything as well. Mm. Um, and so there's there's a lot more strength in having two or even three um, partners working together on something if they've all sort of got different experience as well, mm-hmm. um, which is yeah I think it worked quite well having having two people to to, to share the load and and also have lots of experience and you can externalize those ideas to just really sense check them. Hmm. I really I'm really interested in partnerships all the time. So when I talk to people who are in partnership on the podcast, I always like to delve a bit deeper into sort of what their what their systems are like working together, right? Because you talked about the rules of engagement there, and you know what Sebastian does really well, what you really do well. Obviously, you're you're elevating that together. But like, is there any way that you guys you know structure your communication to each other so that um, to make sure you get you know really good gains for the business, or is it um, pretty unstructured and, and pretty loose? There's definitely been some some structure. I mean, my background very much was important in in that, I think, because Sebastian had come from a more fast and loose world, although he did do nearly two years in corporate or about two years in corporate towards the end, which had matured his communications. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, the basic fundamentals that makes our partnership work is um, there's, a, there's an undercurrent of... Um, Basically, there's a rule that you pretty much have to insult each other as much as possible. (laughs) And, you know, that might not work for everyone, but what it does, what's important about it is there's an expectation that the other person is not always going to be nice to you Mm. and they're not always going to like your ideas and that's okay. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people, they tend to... um, get offended quite easily because it's it's foreign when people say, I don't like that, or you know they get to the point where it's uncomfortable to address minor conflict, and so eventually that boils up into major conflict. Mm. And maybe you don't have to call each other names for that, but it's setting the example that you can both speak plainly with each other um, and do so in a way that doesn't uh, it doesn't undermine you in front of customers or staff. We don't do that, but it's it's about setting the expectation that, you know, I respect you for who you are, but everything about the business and open game is, is open game. You know, we can we can pull apart those ideas, put them back together. Don't be precious about whose idea it was, or where it came from, or how much it's been mushed together, because we all have the same outcome in mind. We all have the same objective. Mm. So, you know, we we got pretty well aligned on the values we had for the business uh, early on. We wrote a brief. We we you know I noted down some questions about how we saw the industry and stuff. It wasn't wasn't anything complicated, but it was good to have that written down and say, okay, well, there's good alignment here about how we see the world. We think we can do coffee that's exceptional without being unapproachable. We think we can um, we can do that fast and get it right every time. 
while doing it with a smile on our face and engaging our customers. Mm. You know, the service is more important than the product. Um, and that was that was the problem we were seeing in the industry, where it's like the better the product got, the more aloof the service became. And that wasn't the kind of experience we wanted people to have. Mm. Joshua, where do you think you got that experience and that grounding in communication and how to do that with um, maybe not so much a motive um, behind it? And the reason why I ask that question is, you know as well as I do, like the people in the hospitality industry are so well connected to customers and to their teams that sometimes, and, and we work at such a fast pace that sometimes things become real emotive really quick. Um, <laughs> and the communication to, to those that we're working with who we really trust and respect can become really challenged. Like, how have you learned to sort of, um, I suppose, take a breath in a way and really think about how the two of you communicate with each other? Uh, I think. A fundamental life obligation is to go and read How to Win Friends and Influence People mm. because it says things that are quite obvious and it repeats them and repeats them with example after example until you really – and I've, I've read that book three times to just keep reinforcing the same lessons that um, if you want something from people, it needs to be a benefit to themselves. Mm. And so when you when you – when you're doing that as in a partnership or you're doing it with a customer or you're, you know, the, my experience, I was very fortunate as we went through the journey of counter, we started off with two of us and we finished, you know, by the time I finished, the Australian organization was about 140. And a lot of that movement of information around the organization was my responsibility. And I had the opportunity to develop individual contributors and then team leads and managers and then directors and, so I had lots of experience with dealing with communication at lots of different levels of the organization. Mm. And that's been really useful because then you could sit and go, okay, well, in any given situation, the only thing I can change is myself. Right? I can't tell my business partner, you have to change and expect that to work. Um, the only thing I can directly control is is what I do and what I say. And so if, if you do that, it's really empowering because it means you're in control. You can you you get to choose how you respond to what someone says or what they do, and that puts you in control of that interaction. Mm. And if you go, okay, well, the guiding principle for me is that I want customers to be having a great time. I want the people in the business to be having a great time, including my business partner and myself. And it needs to be profitable so that it can continue. And if you put put those three things in order, then and you and you remember that as a north star for all your discussion, all your decision making. It's like, okay, is an emotional reaction to this, or um, letting my stress get in the way actually going to deliver any of those three things I've decided in my objective? And if the answer is no, then you have to go through that kind of evaluation process before you respond, mm. because just running your mouth or getting stressed or getting angry, even when things get hectic, is not going to be effective. And you know, you you probably do that with varying degrees of success. Sometimes it's more stressful than others. You know, there was when we opened Little West, I still technically had a broken leg, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I was, yeah, like I, I, you know, I broke at the end of end of June and um, they put a big rod in it and I was running tables on the 17th of August. Wow. Um, and, you know, we, we were already sort of 18 months into paying rent. We had salaries and all this kind of stuff. And so it was a high tension period. And, mm. you know, there were some things we didn't know, some mistakes we'd made. And we, we had to pick, that, pick up the pieces from that. And it, it would have been very easy to be unkind to each other in that time. Mm. Um, but, 
it would have been very unprotect, unpro, <laughs> unproductive to do so. Yes. Um, Joshua, like, how do you how do you think cafes can break through in the industry right now? Like, it's so super competitive, especially in markets like you're in in Sydney, and obviously where I'm in in, in Melbourne, but all around Australia, like. There are synonymous great coffee brands that are just opening up everywhere and continue to do so. Like, do you think now that the coffee industry has matured quite a lot in the last five to 10 years, do you think having a great cafe is purely based on location or do you think it's still around brand and around consistency and around menu? It's a great question and I don't think there's one answer. Um which whichever way let me rephrase if you want to cut through in a market you've got to choose your market and you've got to strict stick to that strategy mm. so um amanda uh who's who's responsible for you know for our brand and content and our food she she calls it the soup of the day cafe she says we we don't want to be a soup of the day cafe and that's not that you shouldn't have soup and vary it but it's it's kind of referring to a to a venue that is trying to be everything to everyone all the time, and so people don't remember it for any particular reason. So if you're going to be, for example, Applegum, it's a transit cafe. It's on a station, which means you need to have a really tight offering, and you need to nail that offering. You don't start doing a full, you know, uh, lunch fried burger with chips right you don't start <laughs> offering soups you don't you like mm-hmm. you've got to stick to to what the area is actually going to need mm. uh, little west we went okay well it's on a uh, like a main street but it's a secondary street right so we're not going to have a lot of footfall we will get a bit of visibility surrounded by residences and a lot of people working from home and we want to make sure that those people have an experience that they can own right so we went okay it's going to be a residential cafe and we've only got 18 seats, so there's no there's no conceivable world where we can make this business successful if all we do is overcomplicated top toast that looks good on Instagram that just attracts a Saturday and Sunday crowd. Mm. So we committed to this idea of having um, fresh, you know, not light in the sense that they're small, but light and fresh, healthy enough menu items that were an accessible price point so that Monday to Friday are locals to the backbone of the business. Mm. But that's not necessarily what you would need to do if you decide to put a hospitality venue in Darling Harbour. Yeah. So it really is very much understanding when you're going into a venue, wherever it is, what is the venue actually going like? What what's the what's the customer base you're actually going to be exposed to? And sticking to that concept instead of getting pulled in all these different directions. Um, the next, I think, is is making sure that you've got a good set of core values. The you, you know you're saying there's a lot of businesses that are opening up. It's, it's less and less uh, people opening up who think that hospitality is a good investment, mm. which is good because there was a big trend of that for a long time. And maybe it made sense when there was cheaper supply lines and their expectations of quality were, were lower. Mm. But hospitality in some ways, it, which is good, it in some ways has become a very difficult business to succeed in. And that's partly because customers are expecting quite high quality um but it's it's you know and also all the the supply chain and labor and all that kind of other stuff but it's um it means that people are i think we're seeing fewer fewer venues open but of higher quality Mm. and people are people are leaning into having a concept or they're leaning into tailoring to a particular kind of audience instead of everyone just doing the same stuff Mm. so to summarize it's 
make sure whatever you put into the venue matches where you're actually putting it. It's not so much about one location will succeed and one won't. It's just recognizing you need to change the concept based on the location and commit to that. Um, there is definitely a minimum requirement around social media um, and making sure that you execute service. That's service and consistency are the minimum. You just shouldn't be in business if you don't want to make great things all the time. Mm. Um, but don't overcomplicate it, you know. The, the idea of the Instagram-ready food that's got 73 garnishes and, and a, a colorful dust on it. Like, you want your food to be good-looking, but people care about flavor. They care about consistency, and they, can, they care about speed, especially if you're talking cafe, right? Yes. So no one wants to go to a cafe on the weekend and wait 45 minutes for something that looks completely overwrought, and they don't, they don't want to look at it. I mean, there is a demographic that likes that, but they're not going to be interested in you in two weeks. You know, they're going to the next one. You're on their bucket list. Mm. You want people who go, there's something I can get from that venue that I can't get anywhere else in the world. Mm. And that doesn't have to be revolutionary. It could just be a slight twist on, on a classic. And it could be a smile from, from the person making you a coffee. And it's, you know, we have an absolute uh, privilege in Australia of having so many good coffee options. It doesn't really matter which one you get as long as you make it well. Yeah, totally agree. Is, is it hard with, you know, creatives as yourself and, and Sebastian and the rest of your team like to to pair back and to keep things simple and honest and grounded and as you build, you know, these these cafes now and not do a blown out menu and not do a, you know, uh, a massive coffee program or do you just go back to your value set and go, no, this is what we're doing. We need to make sure we're keeping down this path. Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with having um, – a concept, like let's say owner in Marrickville, right? They're a, a roastery, that's a concept store, you go there. And and to some extent, Stample Pro Shop as well here in St. Peter's, they, they're doing a whole range of coffees. You know, they have them frozen. They, 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 the whole experience is going there to try the breadth of coffee, like going to a wine bar. Mm. Um, if that's what you're going to do, you need to have established and pedigree to do it. And just going, oh, we're gonna, we're we're just gonna open up a no-name cafe and try and lean into being at the top of a, an industry where it's an experience more than a product. That's probably not going to work for most people. Mm. Um, partly because you don't have the pedigree, but also because um, not that many people are looking for that experience. They want things to be tasty, but not difficult. Mm. Like good example, right? We when we were going into Little West, we went, okay, there's a very high, still a very high. Um, proportion of Italian heritage people in this area, and the stereotype, and it is, it is, it is a legitimate one, is that they tend to like coffee that's roasted darker. The challenge in Sydney is a lot of the coffee is is quite is very much on the lighter side, almost underdeveloped, right? Mm. So it's it's not going to cut through milk in the same way. You're not going to get your malts and your your dark chocolates and things like that. And so we actually opened with two grinders. We were going to have a, um, two milk blends, one for people who liked it, you know, dark and roasty, and people who liked it more light and fresh and and you know, fruit driven. It lasted about four days. Um, <laughs> Because we realized that people just didn't have the capacity to make that decision. Right. Or at least the people who were visiting us. So we actually ended up just deleting that grinder. Um, and we still run four coffees, right? We've got a, um, a single origin Brazil uh, called the Marimbus that we, we use for our milk coffees. But you could drink that as a, a black and espresso if you really want. Mm. We then have a, a single that we rotate through for long blacks and, and espresso. And then we have two different... Um, filter roasts, one for pour over and one for batch. Mm-hmm. And we cycle through those maybe once a week. We tell people what it is. They go, that's great. I, um, 
I feel like I'm getting a better experience and I'm learning a little bit, but at the end of the day, they want a nice coffee. Mm. They're, they're, they're sort of delegating the responsibility of finding nice coffee to us. And it's like, it's interesting for them to know where it's from, but that's they're not going to go like, oh, unless they really get into it, they're not going to go, oh, I'm only going to drink it if it's an African, you know? Mm. Maybe if they're in the industry, but this is the thing, people um, don't, they don't want to go through a difficult experience to get the product. Yeah. That's, that's you know. Yeah. They want it to be not, not in most cases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, you know, if you're going to very specifically do a tasting or something like that, that's the experience you're going for. But if you're going out, you know, and you just want to smash a, a nice, delicious, juicy pour over with a sausage sandwich, well, then you can come in a little west. Like, it's not going to be complicated. You learn a little bit. There's there's precision in what we do, but it's not intended to be complicated. Mm. I want to ask you a couple of analytical questions um, because of all your experience that you've had um, in your previous life at Counter and with Lightspeed. Um, to really get an understanding of how you've opened these venues um, to great success with a lot of knowledge. Now, you talked you talk before about a lot about demographics with these venues so far and how you and Seb have really understood them. Um, was that uh, being around those cafes for a good period of time and just seeing who was walking past and understanding the demographic that was, you know, in um, places nearby? Or is that some more analytical data that you actually leaning on to make those decisions? Yeah, I, I I don't like giving Sebastian compliments, but I will compliment him on this. And he he's ruthless about census data, and we're we're really lucky right now because it just recently we went from the 2016 to I think the 2021 census, mm. and that gives you some really useful information um, and things that you maybe wouldn't think about, things that even I hadn't thought about, and I'm quite experienced with sort of a data background, and. It was things like, okay, well, when, when we were looking for a new location, what was the propensity for homeownership? You know? mm. So in this market right now, interest rates are going up. Somewhere north where we're opening in St. Ives Chase has one of the highest, um, or put it this way, it's got one of the lowest rates of mortgage in the sense that most people have paid off their houses, which means they're not going to be impacted by that and that means they're going to have high discretionary income. Mm. Um, then you've got things like university degrees, you've got dual income households, you've got the age of their kids. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of those things you can get from the census data in about five five minutes for on Google for basically any suburb. Yeah, and that starts to dial in your understanding of an area pretty quickly. Mm. Then you just take some time to go out there, talk to some locals. Um, you know, somewhere north is going to be a little strip mall and St. Ives Chase. We introduce ourselves to the other people around the area. They pretty much always have um, these communities, especially ones that are fairly high percentage of home ownership, mm. tend to all have like a Facebook group or more um, because those people have developed a community. Um, you know, if it's, let's say, somewhere like Mascot where you have a much higher percentage of people renting, those things might not exist and you'd have to look elsewhere. But definitely Facebook groups are a great place to start to sort of just get a read on what the people are like. Um, you know, you can look at things like up up around a whole bunch of the suburbs of the North Beaches. You go, well, why do people move there? Well, they move there and, and you could research this on realestate.com. Mm. Like there's a, a whole bunch of schools there. So you're going to have a, a much higher likelihood of people who have got – um, potentially good discretionary income, but they're very much family focused. So there's a bunch of there's a bunch of data you can just get that's pretty easily and publicly available. Um, yeah, that's I mean that stuff was really useful. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think I think the thing to take out of that is not a lot of brands use that at all, right? Like I know some some brands will go deep into that kind of scenario and 
and and and really understand that world. And then a lot of people would just use, you know, gut instinct, right? <laughs> yeah, or they'll maybe have a bit of hubris, which is like whatever. What it doesn't matter where I open, people will love my ideas because they're mine. Yes. <laughs> you know, and it's it's a bit of give take, right? You you need to have a concept which is a, is strong and comes through, and people can go, oh, I actually like that. It wasn't what I expected, mm. but it 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 still needs to be sensitive to the environment. So mm. Little West is another good example. You know, we wanted that to be much more takeaway heavy than it's become. Mm. You know, we had some on the menu. We had some nods to the Italian heritage, mm. um, and you know, we had some menu items that even got written up in our broadsheet article, but this is the other part of data is, okay, make sure you know what you're selling and what it costs and be ruthless about changing it if you need to. Mm. Not changing it to the whim of the customer, changing it to meet the needs of the customer while staying true to your concept. And so we had to iterate on some of the things that, that we put on that menu, either because they were operationally a bit challenging or they conflicted a little bit or people, you know, liked the idea of it but it was hard for them to eat or, you know, there was a bunch of things like that. And we've, I think we've already changed the last four months. We've cycled through four or five of our hero items, mm. um, which is which is about 40%, 50% of the menu. Yeah. So, wow. <laughs> you know, and most of that was driven by data. You know, what are we wasting? What are we making? What's moving? What's not? What's seasonal is a big one. Um, you know, most of the smaller businesses won't be able to lock in prices with, their fruit and veg suppliers, you know, mm. when we opened, it was impossible to get pickling cucumbers. Mm. Four months. Wow, four months. So, God. Yeah. You did touch on insights and, and light speed there. Obviously, you're on this podcast series, one, because you're a fantastic person. The second, because you're a light speed <laughs> customer, obviously. Now, you know so much about light speed insights and, and I use it for many of my clients in the market who are on Lightspeed. Um, fantastic data. I know how much it helps you as you're growing these locations. But with so much data, sometimes it can, can become a bit of overwhelm as well. Like how are you using different reports in order to make educated decisions on these uh, on these cafes? Yeah, I think business owners are probably okay with the basics. But when you start looking at the other operational people in the business, they may not have that exposure. So I'd start there. Mm. Uh, you know, for example, that's making sure our chef and our front of house manager have access to Insights Live. And a lot of professionals haven't had that exposure. Any like lots of people who've worked as employees in cafes, they actually only have an anecdotal sort of implied understanding of what the turnover is. Mm. And as a business owner, you want to empower those people to make good decisions. So you need to make sure you give them at least some level of data. Mm. So Insights Live is a great first step because then they can see, okay, that's that's actually when we're busy, when we're not busy, and just high level how we're tracking. Um, and that's pretty much off the shelf. The next after that is to make sure that they 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 can see um, product mix data. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's sitting down with with your team, or or just sitting down yourself and having a look and saying, well, what are we selling and what are we not, and grouping that into the reporting groups. So you can go, okay, well, you know, if we look at our whole mix of Hot beverage, cold beverage. We we want to look at food that's made to order versus food that we we sort of have prepared ahead of time versus food we buy in. Mm. You know, where are we making our money and when are we selling that during the day? Because if we know, okay, well, actually, we're selling a lot of our pre-made food at this time. Do we need two people in the kitchen? Mm. You know, or you know that kind of stuff. So it's really using the data to understand what's selling, when it's selling, 
and how to tailor your offering and your labor to that. Mm. And then depending on the venue, um, and this is one that's pretty sloppy, I think, in most venues, is as at, when, when you get to a point where it's big enough that there's a few different people selling concurrently, it's really important to understand who's selling what because the ability to upsell varies greatly. You know, Even just the, the competency to describe the menu effectively mm. varies greatly. And we found that you know, when we opened, Sebastian and I were, were on the tools every day and we'd been deeply involved in the menu development with Amanda. And so we knew all of the reasons we were doing all of the things. But we saw that rapidly drop off as new people came in. It was like, okay, well, they don't, they don't know that the bush tomato sauce was actually a very intentional choice to bring in Australian natives and it, you know, bring in the bush tomato. This is what a bush tomato is and this is the umaminess and that's why it's unique and then we don't use too much sugar and like all this stuff mm. about each of the products. And all of a sudden, you know, people taste it but they don't realize the intentionality behind it. Mm. And that means your brand isn't translating into the customer experience. So tracking the um, the performance of different products for a given person who's doing the same job, you know, is that person moving that product that other people are? That's how you identify training opportunities if you have, have you know, if you want to drive improvements. How often in regards with, I want to ask a question about product mix in a second, but the, the first one I'll ask is like, how do you um, train your team in order to have that knowledge? Is that something, because obviously you've got uh, smaller format um, cafes as part of the group at the moment. Um, is that something that you and Sebastian um, will do sort of on shift with the team or is that something you're doing as sort of collective meetings routinely to talk about the menu that's coming through? Yeah, it's interesting because I lived in the ivory tower for the last 10 years, <laughs> sort of being able to espouse how you should do all these things. And when you get into the thick of it, you are tired, right? Yes. And, you know, that's, that's very much something where going through the exercise of, of working through right now. And one of the things that people do is they don't write anything down. Mm. You know, most of the stuff I just explained about our product mix, why we use natives, how, how we designed that, the exercise we went through to, to make our granola, you know, what wattle seed is, all that stuff's information that's pretty readily available. But putting that into a document and giving it to staff, it's not even that complicated exercise. Mm. But it's not something that, most people feel comfortable doing or they're like, I'll do it later. And then they explain themselves over and over again to, to the staff. But you find that every time you do that manually, it varies. It's inconsistent. You miss things. They can't hold that much information. So they only retain part of it. So definitely there are some things you just have to show people, but there are definitely things you should write down. And if you don't write them down, they don't become assets. Um, and I was, just, I was just remembering the other day, I needed to... I just wanted to find some transcription software. Um, so this this is not a sponsored plug by any stretch of the imagination, but I, there's a thing called otter.ai. Mm-hmm. And I was using it to transcribe something in an audio book. And it just occurred to me that the next time we run one of these training sessions, I'm just going to record it on Otter AI or some other tool like that. And that will be three quarters of it done. I'll put some headers in there and then that will be the documentation and we just keep adding to it. Mm. Um so, you know, very much product knowledge is a part of it. The brand story, you know, just taking the time to put down some, some of the things that are important to you and how they've come through in the, in the brand, I think is important because it gives, the, gives new staff the identity. They can just read and go, oh, they did this with some intention. It's not just because it looked good. Um, and then the final one, and this is one that really you train in service, but it's good to have a cheat sheet, is sequence of service. Mm-hmm. 
It's like, what are the steps we take every customer through? What is their journey? Greet them, seat them, water, menu, ask for coffee, give them two minutes, coffee's come out, ask for the food, cutlery, check for another coffee, clear, reset, Mm -hmm. you know? Just mapping that out, for a lot of people who are experiencing hospitality, it's the natural instinct. They will have a default sequence of service in their head, but most staff don't. Agree. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. Um, uh, I was going to say like some brands will have, you know, a minimum of five, uh, upwards I've seen like 12 different different times a, a staff member would touch a table. So that's quite, that's quite interesting insight. Um, Josh, I was going to ask you as well about product mix. Um, you talked about that just before. Like, um, how often are you sitting down and looking at product mix as a, as a team to look at how your menu is performing? Is that something you sort of do every other week? Is that something you do sort of seasonally at the moment? How's that working? Well, at minimum seasonally, but we've actually set it up. So in, in Insights, you always got your standard reporting. Then you can get some fancier reports, which gives you you know a wider set. Uh, and you've also got the ability to set up schedules. Mm. So it's nice to have reports there, but most people are not commonly going to look. Even myself, mm. you know, sometimes I won't look at something for a week. And so uh, on a Monday and a Friday, there's a schedule that emails us a product mix and it emails some hourly sales and it emails some of those things that it says, you need to look at this and keep a touch on it. You, it usually takes 30 seconds to a minute to see there's an outlier. It's like, oh, that's not performing very well. Mm. And or like, here's a simple exercise. We had our muffalettas, which were like a, you know, you hollow out the inside of the sandwich and you lay it with this great stuff mm-hmm. and you wrap it, you press over nuts, the flavors all become best friends. That's a pitch that I should have written down because I had to u- teach all the staff <laughs> what that was and how to do it. But, you know, it's been called everything from a sandwich cake to a sandwich pie to all sorts of weird things. But it was a simple exercise to go, okay, well, I can see in the last two weeks or whatever it was, it was last month or something like that, the total number of portions we'd sold. But I know that the minimum we make on a day is six. And since we introduced new menu items over the holidays, the sales of that had dropped off. And so I was like, simple mass. I'm like, well, we should have, we probably made 140 portions, but we sold only about 80. That means we wasted about 60 serves of that. All the kitchen ate them and they're probably tired of it. And so, we, you know, I flicked a quick message to, you know, we use Slack to the, you know, Bass's GM and to, to Amanda and just said, I think the, you know, the mufflet is going to die. And they were like, yeah, it feels like it's not performing. Um, and it might make a comeback, but just ruthlessly we're like, it's not performing. It's, it needs to go. Because every spot on your menu is very valuable. Yeah, I totally agree. I was, I was going to say as well, like I think it's important with you um, still being operational in the business but not to the level of, of Sebastian, um, like to, to actually make that point because I think sometimes I see it with venue owners, like they become so emotive around certain menu items that even when it's not selling, they're super worried about what that customer who is the one that is buying that product is going to say <laughs> and what they're going to, what yeah. kind of level of abuse they're going to get when they take that product off. So I think that's a really powerful thing for you to sort of make that decision and get the team on board. I think that's awesome. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the, the goal with that one, we definitely said, well, we need another sandwich type option. And, you know, the team went away and worked on that. And now there's this beautiful poached chicken sandwich with like a much, a much lighter, more fresh approach that's easier to make. And, you know, sometimes you need, to create room for innovation. Yeah, I love it. 
Um, Joshua, my last question to you, mate, is obviously you've got two cranking cafes that are that are open right now. I know there are more in the way. Um, what are what are the plans for the future with the brand with yourself and Sebastian? Yeah, so we had this apple gum's been around for a while. Like it's it's a battle hardened, calloused venue after three years of lockdowns and, and no transit. So it's it's kind of just plugging away, right? Mm. Um, the plan is to to freshen that up and and, and improve it. You know, we've got some expansion opportunities at Little West, but really just we want to lock down the the experience there so people are getting consistency, especially as Sebastian shifts his focus to somewhere north. Mm-hmm. And so all the stuff we just talked about, like consistency, training, education, all that's got to be part of it because no matter what you do, hospitality is pretty high turnover. And so investing in your ability to onboard people effectively and hold them accountable is like critical. Mm-hmm. Um so, so those are key focuses, and then somewhere north introduces, you know, some some new variety. It's it's going to be night times. It's restaurant trade as well. It's you know, there's going to be a liquor license. Um, so there's a few things to to get under wraps there. And you know, if we look look into the future, there's probably a fourth, or at least a big expansion, Little West. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I know Sebastian with his background uh, and also having married a Brazilian woman. He's got some some ideas that he'd be interested in exploring around maybe vertically integrating. Um, you know, there's all sorts of different opportunities, but I think, you know, the the model we're going for at the moment is finding underserved communities. You know, with obviously with some some affluence and saying we're going to give you um, you know a banging cafe. And I think the first and best example I could think of where that was really done by a specialty coffee brand was when. Um, when the boys opened up Excelsior Jones in Ashfield. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you've been to that, but it opened up about 2014. Great cafe. It was on this nothing corner in the middle of like just houses. And it just became an instant success because people didn't have to go to high streets. They didn't have to mess around with um, parking and things like that. Mm. So there's, there's definitely a lot to be said about that kind of approach, bringing hospitality to the people. Which I'm glad you're doing, mate. Um, and thank you so much to you as Sebastian for just you know pumping out great quality venues. And I'm and I'm so happy that you're doing so because you're the industry is better for it for both of you doing such a great job, um, mate. What is the best way that people can connect with the cafes and and uh, and come on down in city? Yeah, easiest way is go onto Instagram. Um, not so much for all of the pretty pictures, but you know it's a pretty quick messaging exercise. Um, you know. <laughs> there's a whole there's a whole discussion to be had about phone numbers and hospitality brands. Yes. Um yes. and the fact that they always end up going through to some poor owner's mobile phone number. But <laughs> yeah, best best way to, to reach us is on Instagram or just just come in for a brew. Fantastic. As always, linked up in the show notes of this podcast. Joshua Harrison, thanks so much for your time. Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Raw, brought to you by Lightspeed and the Poe Network. We hope you really enjoyed the episode and we'd love for you to leave us a review and share this podcast with your friends in the industry. It would mean a lot to us and we'd love to hear your feedback on this series. To find out more about Lightspeed and how they can ignite your business in hospitality, you can find them at lightspeedhq.com.au. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode and until next time, stay well, everyone.